Good evening and welcome to the inaugural Middle East Center webinar. My name is Eugene Rogan and as Center Director, it's my great pleasure to be speaking to you tonight from the boardroom of the Middle East Center here in Oxford in what used to be the library reading room of the Middle East Center, which for decades was the venue where we hosted our Friday seminar series. It's gonna be familiar terrain to any of our alumni who are joining us from abroad. And I'm delighted to welcome you all back and to welcome everyone who is joining us for tonight's presentations. It is a pleasure and an honor to be joined by Dr. Ala El Aswani. Since the publication of his second novel, The Yakubian Building, in 2002, Dr. Ala has emerged as the most admired and widely read author in Arabic publishing. The Yakubian Building was, I believe, the most successful book ever published in the Arabic language, and each subsequent novel has proven a massive bestseller. Chicago, which came out in 2007, drawing on his personal experiences as a student in that city, and then in 2013, the Automobile Club of Egypt, and most recently, Al Gomhuriyat Ka'an, or the so-called Republic, which has yet to see light of publication in the English language. But his novels have been translated in over 30 different languages and have truly established him as a figure of global literature. Between his novels, Dr. Ala has, until recently, maintained a full-time dental practice and written political commentary for the Egyptian press. Three volumes of Ala's political writings are now available in English. There is his On the State of Egypt, What Made the Revolution Inevitable, which came out in 2011, the revolutionary year for Egypt. Democracy is the Answer, Egypt's Years of Revolution, published in 2015. And the subject for tonight's talks, and the book that has given the theme to the entire terms of webinar series, The Dictatorship Syndrome. The book is available with a discount through the website where you connected to get your registration for this webinar tonight. And I would strongly urge all of you to take a moment to read The Dictatorship Syndrome. Every now and again, we get a book from the region that is a kind of defining document that captures a political moment in the history of the region. To me, it's something like Samir Kassir's book, Being Arab, which did a similar tour of the horizon for the Arab world in the aftermath of the invasion of Iraq. And I think this is an important book that's going to provoke so much conversation about our region and beyond. Dictatorship, of course, is a subject that has preoccupied Dr. Ala since his 2014 essay in Arabic, how do we produce dictators? And a theme that holds relevance well beyond the Middle East on which we focus. This is not the first time, but the third, we've had the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Ala to the Middle East Center community. He first came in 2009 after the publication of Friendly Fire, and then again in 2015 after the English translation of the Automobile Club of Egypt. And I'm so happy to be welcoming you live from New York City, Dr. Ala, welcome back. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me and thank you very much for the wonderful introduction you made. Well, um, having introduced uh, um, you so warmly, Allah, now we go to work. And when you're not <laughs> writing novels or newspaper columns, you are a dentist. Hence, we call you Dr. Allah. Medical metaphor comes to you so naturally. So explain for us, in forensic terms, what you mean by a diagnosing dictatorship as a syndrome. Talk us through the book. Well, you know, there is, uh, in medicine, there is a difference between the disease and the syndrome, because the disease is a, a disorder of some organ or some system in the body. But when you have signs and symptoms which are repeated every time together, we call this syndrome. So I thought that the syndrome would be the right description for dictatorship because I made a research and I noticed that there are many, many similarities between dictators and dictatorships all over the world. In the book, I'm not only talking about the Arab dictators. I try to understand the phenomena in Africa, Latin America, in Europe. And interestingly to me, I found that the phenomena is repeating itself 
like a syndrome with the same signs and same symptoms. Sometimes dictators are saying even the same sentences. You see, so there were sentences quoted, for example, by Bukasa, the African dictator. And the same sentence was said by a Sisi. And for me, this is very important because it's significant, because it means that they think the same way, and that's why they say the same thing. Accordingly, I try to understand the phenomena, and I try to explain how it happens and how we could cure the syndrome. And I think that it's in the way of diagnosing an ill and then subjecting that analysis to thinking about cures. That means your book has actually got a very positive message as well. Absolutely. The assumption is that the idea that the dictator as an individual could at some point impose himself on a nation of millions of people, this is not true. What happens is that some people, at some point, they are prepared to accept the dictator. Sometimes they are waiting for the dictator. And this idea was presented for the first time by a French sociologue in the 16th century, and uh, I explained this in the book, Étienne de la Boissy. De la Boissy wrote, uh, unfortunately, he died in the age of 31, and he wrote one single book. And this book is very important. The book is called, in French, Le Discours de la Servitude Volontaire. You could, of course, uh, easily translate it to the discourse of the voluntary servitude. And he is presenting for the first time the idea of the dictatorship is a mutual relation. It's not one-sided relation. It's that the people accept or are prepared at some point. And usually, usually the deal is they give up their freedom and then return, they have protection, usually. But you cast the people on the one hand almost as the victims of dictatorship, but there's also in your analysis a notion of complicity of the people in making the monster of the dictator. And in the opening of your book, you tell a personal account of your experience of going out with your father at the end of the 67 June war, confronting the crowds in that moment of crisis where they realized that they'd suffered defeat and that Nasser had led them into this defeat. And yet still they saw Nasser as the necessary leader. They would not accept his resignation. Talk us through a little bit about how even as a child, your eyes were open to this complicity between society and the dictatorship. Well, that's my father was, as I wrote in the book, was a writer and lawyer and he was leftist. And he very eerily told me that despite the fact that Nasser is achieving very good things for the poor people, but it will never work because you need freedom first to protect the achievements. And that's exactly what happened after the death of Nasser. Just uh, all the achievements fell apart. The comparison I tried to make is that Nasser was defeated miserably and the people took to the street for him to stay. And on the other hand, I made a comparison with Winston Churchill, who led Great Britain to a great victory in the Second World War. And then after that, he lost the elections. And I concluded that in Egypt, by that time, there was the syndrome of dictatorship. And in England, it wasn't the case. So people were capable to keep their critical thinking. They were capable to say that Churchill is a great man, but he's not necessarily the right man now to be a prime minister. That was not our case in Egypt. And I found a very interesting book by Tawfir Hakim. You know who is Tawfir Hakim, of course. He wrote The Return of Conscience. It, it's a small book, but it's really into the phenomena, into the syndrome. He said, I will never forgive myself that I felt that 
this regime was lying, but I was attracted. I was seduced by the charisma of the dictator, by the propaganda machine. And I found this very important. And I tried to explain everything inside the syndrome. I think one of the strengths of the book is that you don't pin the syndrome as a feature of Arab society, but you globalize it. You're constantly pulling examples from other parts of the world that have confronted dictatorship and where societies have been drawn into supporting and enabling dictatorships. But how do you view dictatorship in its Middle Eastern context? I mean, is this a particular problem of politics in our region? Well, there is a common mistake has been always done by some people is that to put all the Arab nations on the same line and to try to analyze the situation in all the Arab nations on equal basis, which is the the Arab nations, of course, they share many things like the language, mostly the religion, the history was colonialism and everything. But the Arab societies are very different as far as the progress and the conscious may be concerned. Accordingly, you see, for example, in the Gulf area, the idea of the ruler as a public servant, it's almost doesn't exist. Of course, I have with my full respect to the Gulf societies, but we, we're trying to understand. They believe that there is the head of the tribe or the father, or the protector, or the head of the family. That's how they see the ruler. That was not the case in Egypt because, as you know, we had a very early experience in democracy. We had the first parliament in the 19th century, and we had the first constitution in 1923. And we had relatively a liberal experience before the military coup d'etat 1952. Accordingly, you're referring to some model in a way. And this, you could see it easily when Mubarak was overthrown by the revolution and he was brought to justice. There was an anger all over the Gulf states, at least by the royal families. First, they didn't understand how could you, and that was said, how could you put your own father behind the bars, you know? Second, I believe that Egypt's influence is extremely important in the region. So they felt threatened themselves as rulers because if this will happen in Egypt, it could happen in the Gulf area as well. So I think to to understand the Arab societies, we, we should understand the background of each society because they don't have really the same background. Second, we have the problem of religion. It's a big problem, you know. Of course, I'm not against the religion, but our interpretation of the religion, especially the Wahhabism, uh, and I'm quite sure you know what is Wahhabism, is pushing the people to obey the ruler. And the message is very clear under Wahhabism, is that you should obey the Muslim ruler even if he's corrupt, even if he's a criminal, if he's brutal, you should obey. And of course, this will have an influence on the attitude of the people. So the idea is that you learn through religion to obey the sheikh or to obey the pope in Egypt for the Christians. And then you will obey the dictator easily because you're totally prepared by the religion to obey. Well, I don't think that you are yourself naturally inclined to obedience. And I think that as a writer, you've always been pushing back at those elements of the government that have been autocratic or dictatorial. In so many of your novels, there is the figure of the dictator in the background. In Yakubian building, it's the big man. And he figures as a shadowy puppet master behind the scenes. In in Chicago, you have the visit of the president. And the way you portray the president is very clear about the feelings you have for the abuse of power that the president had come to represent. And if one goes to your Wikipedia page and, and looks at all the long list of the awards that you've received, 
it's really noticeable how unloved you are by the sort of publishing elite in your own country. So I think that you've been pushing back on dictatorship all along, but is there something then that that's been actually encouraging your creative writing? Do you find that you're inspired by dictatorship in your writing? Of course, of course, because you, you write because the distance between what happens and what should happen becomes too much to be accepted. You see, accordingly, that's how you, you get inspired. And I know through friends that in some societies, the society of prosperity and equality and people don't have almost any problem, the inspiration for literature becomes less. You see, of course, I would like my country and the Arab world to be okay. I'm not saying that we should suffer from dictatorship so that they could write. If we will have the democracy, I'm quite sure I will have some other topic to, to write about. But it's true that I have been inspired by the injustice, especially the injustice. No, it comes through so clearly in both your fiction and in your nonfiction. The columns that you would write for Al Sharuk and Al Masri Al Yom, you know, you used to sign your articles, Democracy is the Solution. And we always thought that that was in reference to the Muslim Brotherhood, who were saying that it's Islam that's the solution. But Dr. Allah, yeah. no, he's putting democracy forward. But now, in light of the most recent book, The Dictatorship Syndrome, I mean, it's almost as though you're trying to answer that the solution to dictatorship is democracy. And is this where your thinking has been evolving in your nonfiction writing? Yeah, of course. I think that democracy is a very, very important idea. And the people of the regime in Egypt, and I must say that we have the same regime since 1952 with different versions, probably the current version and the most brutal one. But we, we have had the same regime, you know. You drink coffee and you drink coffee either with milk or with sugar or without sugar, but basically you drink coffee. So we have been drinking coffee now too long for <laughs> since 1952, you know. So they say all the time there is an argument which the, the regime is presenting that we're not prepared for democracy, not now, you know. I must remind you here that Nasser, when he arrived to power, the officers said that we're going to stay only for six months. And then after that, we're going to make elections, organize elections, and then we will go back. We will leave the politics, you know, and they haven't done this for 70 years. On the other hand, I have a real problem with the political Islam, and uh, I think for many reasons, and you will find this in my writings and also in my novels. I believe that Islam is a great religion, but the idea of when you present Islam as a model for a state, you present a fake history, which never happened. Unfortunately, the political Islam, Sheikh, they recruit the young people who didn't read history and they don't want to read history. There was no is an Islamic state based on religion in our history never happened. You know, what happened is an empire like all the old empires, which were based on massacres and, you know, uh, conspiracy and you could find this easily in Dawla al in Dawla al even in the Andalus. And the fact that you present Dawla al-Osmaniya as an Islamic state, this is a big lie, you know, because what happened is that the Ottoman colonialism was even worse than the British colonialism. And we could go to a very famous historian, Ibn Iyas, who describes the first day of Ottoman occupation to Cairo. They killed 10,000 people who were not soldiers. Uh, and so they kidnapped... the 17th century. Yes. the 20th century either. Yes. So the idea is that all this, all what is presented in the political Islam 
is a fake history just to, to use the religious feelings of the young people and to make, you know, to present a kind of simple history, which is totally fake, that everybody is against us, the, the West, uh, the West is one, one single thing for them. Uh, the West is against us, is against Islam. We should make the jihad to conquer the, those people who are against Islam. And accordingly, I think it's totally fake, first. Second, the groups of political Islam, and I'm talking here about the Muslim brothers and the Salafi people, the Salafi people existed after the, the boom of the oil. You know, Before that, there was no Salafi people. But the Muslim brothers, they joined every time the dictator, they helped the dictator against the democratic force. Beginning from 1952, that's this, the same cycle. Muslim brothers helped the dictator, Nasser, to get rid of Al-Wafd and uh, democracy. And then at some point, they asked Nasser to pay the bill and he refused and he put them in prison. And then after that, he, they said that released them and so forth. This is exactly what happened after the Egyptian revolution. The army used the Muslim brothers against the revolutionaries. And then at some point, it was too much, so they sent them to prison. Of course, I'm not justifying any massacre. I'm not justifying any violation of human rights whatsoever. This is something that I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to explain my position against the political Islam. No, and of course, your position is well known. And you were very outspoken in your publications on your views about the Muslim Brotherhood and about Mohammed Morsi's presidency and enthusiasm <laughs> for Tamarud to bring this experiment to an end. But of course, you got a lot of criticism for that as well. And I think that you have always, in a sense, by expressing your views openly and freely, invited criticism, both from those who represent the kind of military secular elite and those who represent the religious opposition like the Muslim Brotherhood, which leaves you in a very uncomfortable place in Egypt. No, I don't, I really don't care because I think that, you know, Ernesto Guevara said, the honor is to say always what you think and to do always what you say. I try to do that. So um, I've been always attacked by both sides, the people who are CC supporters and the Islamists. Why? Because they cannot tolerate, and they have the same mentality, they cannot tolerate anything against their propaganda. So the propaganda of the Muslim Brothers is that Morsi was the first elected ruler of Egypt, and he was overthrown. This is not exactly what happened. But it's true. The first, may I, may I, of course. <laughs> may I express my hold opinion, on, please? <laughs> the first ruler elected or uh, chosen by the people was Muhammad Ali. And then after that, there was Saad Zaghloul, 1924, free elections after the constitution. So one, it is not true. Second, they said that he was a civil president. Very good. A civil president should not have tens of thousands of militants who could use violence to attack his opponents at any point. Morsi did that. Morsi did that in uh, the Supreme Court. Morsi did that against the media city. You know, Morsi was a member of a very mysterious underground group with militants. And here you could get back to Mussolini. Mussolini was not military. Mussolini was journalist. And he formed the black church, as you know. I cannot say that Mussolini was a civil president. This is not true. Third, do you believe that when the army is killing the people in the street, and when the army is doing, is committing a massacre every month during 2011, do you believe that the army will allow the results of any election 
if they don't like the results? Could you imagine that the army was killing the people in the streets in Egypt? Overnight will be democratic and he will accept the fact that Morsi won. Number four, there is a problem. There is a case against the elections of Morsi and there were many violations. And these case, we have three judges who just resigned not to see the case. Why? Because if they said that Shafi won, it means that Sisi has no place in power. So they didn't want to do that. Nobody talks about that. And Morsi, when he came to power, I and other people accepted, right? Despite the fact that, um, of course, I don't believe that it was free election at all. But anyway, and then he made a constitutional decree, November 2012. Nobody talks about that. According, we did. According, I mean, we did criticize it. Yes, I, no, it's not criticizing. He is this a destruction of the idea of democracy. Definitely. I mean, somebody who according to this decree, will paralyze, will omit the Egyptian law, and he will put his presidential decisions above the law. What kind of democracy is this? Well, Allah, I'm going to and, go back to dictatorship for just a minute, because yeah, okay. your views on, on the Morsi presidency, I, I think, are familiar to us, and I want to give us our audience a chance as well. I should say, dear audience, that I'm going to ask probably another question uh, to Dr. Allah before we'll open up to your questions so that we can broaden the conversation. Do please, if you'd like to ask a question, go to the Q&A bar on your screen and type in your question. My colleague Michael Willis will be bringing your questions back to us in just a moment. If you wish to be named, put your name on the question. If you want your question to be anonymous, put anonymous next to your question. We will respect your wishes. But uh, I'll be handing the floor over to you, dear audience, in just a moment. But let me come back to your book, Ala, because you end the book with a chapter on prevention of dictatorship syndrome. And you focus on charisma and idols and religion and chauvinism and conspiracies. I look at you now in your new life in Brooklyn, and I'm just wondering, are you making any suggestions or giving any advice to American voters in November's elections by your prescription for coming out of dictatorship syndrome? What do you expect me to say? Of course, I'm against Mr. Trump. And I think Mr. Trump is very dangerous. And I could see many signs of the dictatorship syndrome happening in America. You know, people who don't care really about their, their freedom, and they need the hero, they need somebody to protect them from the immigrants and all this stuff. Uh, and of course you have, Trump has been useful because I think, because the experience of Trump has showed that the democratic system in America has serious problems. And those problems should be fixed, you see. Why? Because Trump is a kind of class A citizen, which was not the case for Obama, of course, or any other. He's class A. He's, uh, as we say in French, comme il faut. Uh, he's very rich. He's white, Protestant, you know, has been, uh, he has very good contacts, you know. And, and you see how uh, many times the law stops before Trump. You go to... Uh, Mueller uh, committee, for example, report, you go to many things. And this guy hasn't presented yet his tax returns. You know, it's unbelievable. And it is unbelievable that a president, a sitting president, has a lawyer who admits that he made negotiations with two prostitutes and the, the lawyer is in prison but Mr. Trump is okay. And you could imagine easily if Obama was caught with a prostitute, <laughs> what could have happened? <laughs> you see? 
No, but I just go through the list again. You, you, talk, you focus on charisma. I think about Trump and the way he appeals to his crowds in those big rallies. You talk about religion, and I think about his appeal to the conservative and evangelical Christians. You talk about chauvinism, and I think about his appeal to the alt-right and white supremacists. You talk about conspiracies, and I think about QAnon. One of the things about your book that for a reader who is American but works on the Middle East is I can see that you are diagnosing a syndrome that really has a, a universal applicability. And I think in this moment, we shouldn't sit back and go, oh, this is a critique of Egypt and those Egyptians have got to clean up their house. I think we all have to wake up and think about what it means to confront dictatorship and not to be the society that enables or becomes complicit in the syndrome. Thank you very much. This is really what I had in mind when I wrote the book. It is not just about Egypt. It's not about the Arab world. It's everywhere. And you'll find the same thing and the same phenomena. And I tell you, for example, in France, it's not, it's not different. You have the, the extreme right, Le Front National, and they are presenting themselves as the protectors of the French people against the immigrants the Muslims, the terrorists, you know, and, and of course you cannot with this propaganda, there was a statistic that the last 10 years, 85% of the victims of the terrorist attacks were African people or Muslims or colored people. So the white victims, of course, any, any single victim for me, you know, is, is a big drama, but I'm just talking about how the propaganda could work. You know, we, I'm talking we as non-white Muslims, we have been victimized by terrorism, you know, much more than any, anybody else. And we are accused of being terrorists in the same time. I could go on with you at great length, but I can see a Q&A bar that's beginning to fill up, and I know our audience is going to grow increasingly impatient with me dominating this conversation. So I'd like to invite my colleague, Michael Willis, who has been monitoring the questions that the audience has been giving us, to join us now and to share the questions from the audience. Michael, over to you. Thank you, Eugene. Yes, lots of questions coming in for Dr. Alav. The first one coming in is... Do you think that people have been brainwashed for a long time to obey their leader will take easily to democracy? I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Could you repeat the question, please? Do you, uh, the question is, do you think that people who have been brainwashed for such a long time with the lack of freedom, lack of a justice system, will take very easily to democracy if it were to No, no. But this is, this is our, our duty to try to, you know, I write, of course, I write novels as an art, I'm, I'm not writing novels, you know, for any political uh, goal, but uh, I try and I think any, anybody who's intellectual who could give to the people some help thinking about their conscience, about understanding what is happening should, must do that. But it is not easy. Yes, thank you very much for the question. You know, we have been brainwashed. We have had a terrible propaganda and we learned to rely on our father and our father, unfortunately we had many fathers, none of them to me was a good one. We began by Muhammad Nagib and then Nasser and then Sadat and then Mubarak and then Sisi. And we learned uh, to deal with those dictators as if they were our fathers. You know, I had a debate on Egyptian TV after the revolution with the prime minister of Mubarak and he resigned after the debate, uh, Ahmed Shafi. And I was surprised. Of course, I was supported by all the people of the revolution and many people. But I was surprised that people, I didn't, I, I didn't insult the prime minister. I didn't say uh, anything which is not uh, adequate. But I just practiced my right as a citizen. I asked him. What did you do that? What did you do that? Why, where are the people who killed the protesters? You know, you're protecting. I mean, a discussion that could happen in any democratic country or which is happening every day. And I found some people, or I would say many people who didn't like that. 
And they said, how could you talk to your father this way? And I said, listen, my father died, you know, and he's not my father. And yes, we need time and we need effort to get the people back to the conscience of democracy. Yes. Which leads in very nicely to the next question. You've described the, the syndrome or, or, or the disease, as you said, a more, more of a syndrome. What is your prescribed treatment for this syndrome? Well, the treatment exists, and uh, I, I wrote the treatment in the book, but I could just briefly say what is the treatment. The first element of the treatment is to understand the syndrome, is not to be seduced by a hero. The idea of the hero is very dangerous, you see. And why? Because the hero will be above anything. Accordingly, you could see that the countries or the people who have had a democratic experience, they resist the hero. Even if he was a real hero, and you could see what happened with Churchill, what happened with de Gaulle, who was a real hero, you know. So we should not accept the idea of the hero. Anybody in power is a public servant, and he's working for us. And of course, the conscious and the religion, the religion is very dangerous. And we should be careful. I'm not against the religion, but I'm against the religious concept which presents or prepares the people to accept dictatorship. Which I then, the follow-up question to that, thank you, is the whole idea, therefore, of a benevolent dictator coming from Frank Domoni is... You don't believe in that as a syndrome. There are no benevolent dictators. It's, it's something like, you know, well, no, that was, that was a very famous uh, term that happened in France, is that it could be translated the enlightened, the enlightened dictator. The dictator is good. And it's something like the honorable thief. <laughs> there, is, there is a contradiction inside the term, you see, and of course, I'm not saying that all dictators were a big failure. Probably we have, our Arab dictators have failed more than any other dictator in, every, in everything. But of course, you have some dictators who began with big achievements. I must tell you that when Hitler arrived to power, there were 8 million unemployed in Germany. And after a few years, there was no one single German who was unemployed. But look what happened after that. The problem is that you begin with achievements. And then there is something called la solitude du dictateur, the solitude of the dictator. And it's a category of fiction writing in Latin America. Huh? The dictator becomes totally disconnected because he hears all the time what he wants to hear. And he's disconnected from reality. And then at some point, I wrote that in the book, there is the fatal, the terrible decision. The terrible decision, for example, for Hitler was to attack the Soviet Union. For Mussolini was to attack Greece. For uh, Gaddafi was to support the terrorist. Terrorist attacks uh, for uh, Nasser was 1967 for Saddam Hussein was the invasion of Kuwait. You will find always in the end, even if he began, which could happen with good achievements, but at some point he will have a fatal decision. And this goes in history without one single exception. Thank you. Next question comes from Alia Said, and she says, going back to the possible treatment the role of education, do you blame a lot of what has happened on the lack of a good education in the Arab world, particularly in Egypt? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you very much. But I would just move the question a little bit and modify it. And I'll tell you, do you think the dictator is interested really to give good education to the people? I would say no. I have many, many, I have really evidence that they don't care. They want to give the good ed education for the elites. And the elites are related to the religion. 
but they understand dictators or even they feel that the good education is a threat, which is true. Accordingly, again, it's the duty of the intellectuals and the educated people to try to educate the people who didn't have the opportunity to get a good education. But I don't think a dictator would educate really the people. And if he does that, it's going to be very dangerous to him. Thank you very much. I also have a question about to what extent does your own personal experience in Egypt influence your thinking about dictatorship? How much of it is a product of your Well, I, 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 I was born, raised under uh, a dictator until now. I mean, we didn't see any democracy whatsoever. I didn't. My generation, and I don't think any, uh, any other person saw any democracy. But as I told you, this version is the most aggressive version of the same regime. So I was banned of, uh, from writing in, uh, under Mubarak just two months before the revolution. But as soon as Mr. Sisi arrived to power, I was banned from writing any TV appearance, banned from publishing, banned from everything. Of course, I'm a dentist and uh, I still practice dentistry. So I was asking myself if Mr. Sisi at some point will arrest my patients. And uh, they were lucky not to be arrested because they just came to fix their teeth. But at some point I had to go to, I teach creative writing in America. And, uh, and then with my new novel, which will uh, appear in English in April, I was brought to a military court, a military court in Egypt because of the novel. And of course I, I was not in Egypt and uh, I didn't send any lawyer for two reasons. First, it won't change anything because in the military court, the decision had been taken already. And uh, second, I don't recognize the fact that a novelist could be brought to a military court because of a novel. So this is the most aggressive version of the same regime. Thank you very much. Question on the role of social media. Has it made dictatorship worse? Well, no, I, I don't think so. I think the social media has been has been a headache to the Arab dictators. And the evidence is that it is banned in many countries, some forms like WhatsApp and Viber. And also, they make a kind of propaganda against the social media. My personal experience is that I have on Twitter, for example, 3 million and 400,000 followers. And this is three times, three times the circulation of all the Egyptian uh, newspapers together, you know. Accordingly, it's very hard to ban uh, me or to stop me because thanks to the social media, without the social media, it would have been impossible. So I think, of course, they tried to use the dictator, uh, the dictatorships try to use the social media and they send officers to get a training how to control and stop and to, ha to make a hacking on some accounts. But in the end, the social media has been very useful uh, against the dictator, Arab dictators, of course. Thank you. The next question is about the, the monarchies. Do you think it's a, a distinctive type of dictatorship or is it really the same as the, Repub as the Republican notions of, of dictatorship? Is it something? No, I, we, we, the king in the Arab world is different than the king in the West. The king in a democratic country, as you know, is just a symbol and he's not ruling or she's not ruling. The king in the Arab world is the real ruler, you see? And you see, for example, that in the kingdoms in the Arab world, they leave a space for, you know, discussion and parliament. And, but there is a red line before the king or the royal family. And the king is ruling. I'm not against any kingdom, but I'm against a ruling king because a ruling king is a terrible dictator. Uh, I would say if at any country they would like to keep the king, he should be, or 
He should be a constitutional king, not just a, a ruler. Thank you. Question from Otto Barrow here in, in Oxford, and particularly about the role of censorship and the threat of retribution and how, is it affect, how you think it affects it generally and also how has it affected the way that you have written and discussed these issues personally? Well, the idea of censorship means simply that something is banned and something is allowed. And that was the case under Mubarak. We don't have censorship anymore in Egypt because nothing is allowed. Accordingly, uh, we don't have censorship. We have the regime controlling everything. Every single word either written or said on TV in Egypt has been approved by an officer. So we don't have censorship. We have no we have no freedom of expression at all. Under Mubarak, we didn't have the freedom of expression. We had the freedom of talk. Because as you know, the freedom of, of, of expression is a democratic tool. You write something, you accuse somebody in power, something should be done in the parliament or even in, by a court or whatever. This is a freedom of expression. What we had under Mubarak was the freedom of talk in the sense that Mubarak was telling us, we writers, you write whatever you want, I will do whatever I want. Now we don't have freedom of expression at all. And we don't have freedom of talk. And if you just push, if you like something, I wrote against the CC, you could be in trouble. If you, it's something like, you know, under Stalin, uh, what is happening in Egypt, it's even worse than under Nasser. So why? Because the regime has become like a wounded tiger. And if you read a little bit about the animals, a wounded tiger, is much more dangerous than a tiger who is not wounded. Because the tiger who is not wounded has self-confidence. So he's not going to attack everybody. Once the tiger has been wounded, he will attack everybody because he doesn't have self-confidence. And that's exactly what is happening by the regime. Mr. Sisi is almost every month, every month, he talks all the time. He has conferences all the time. And he, and this is a typical dictator attitude. But every month he is repeating the same sentence. What happened in 2011, referring to the revolution, will never happen again. Thank you. Question from Emma Murphy. All the dictators you reference in Egypt and elsewhere are men. How does gender play a role in both the construction of dictatorship and response of the good citizen? Thank you very much. And a very good question again. All the questions are wonderful. You cannot be progressive partially. And this is something, it's like a dictator will never believe really, really in the rights of the woman. And he will never believe in the rights of the minorities. Why? Why? Because this is his conscience. He could pretend to do some reforms on the surface. And here you could get back to Suzanne Mubarak as an example, you know, but they pretend you cannot be a dictator who is abusing the people, who doesn't believe that the people have the right to decide. And on the other hand, you will support the equality between men and women. This will never happen. It's a it's a package of conscience. And then when you're a dictator, you get back to, to the relation between Mussolini and the church, between Franco and the church. You know, the dictator is our father and he doesn't like, uh, he doesn't accept any attitude by any woman against the principles of our family. This has been repeated. Sisi is the last one who said it. Thank you. 
Next question, we've got a few questions coming through about the role you think the military play in all of this, particularly obviously in Egypt, but, but elsewhere as well. The military should defend the country. This is the only rule. And any military which is exceeding this rule uh, is very dangerous to everybody. The military is an organized force to defend the country. We have in Egypt, as you, I think, you know that the military has, we don't, we don't have st reliable statistics. And this is another sign of any dictatorship. You will never have re reliable statistics in a dictatorship because the, the dictatorship, the, the, the people are lying all the time. So you don't know. But we know that the military has projects in every field in Egypt. I don't understand how the military could have projects to sell, uh, you know, fish or to sell tomatoes or to sell fruits or to make, um, you know, so the military should be, if there will be a democracy in Egypt or in any country, the military should do the role of the military, which is to defend the country, nothing more. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, Allah, I think we've come to the point of the evening where we have to bring things to a close. I say that with a heavy heart because looking at my screen, I can see we have 43 questions stacked up on the Q&A line. So this truly, Thank you very much. This is a conversation that we could be taking late into the night. It tells you something about the degree in which you've engaged your audience and you have provoked their thought, our thought. Indeed, we're going to continue with this exploration of the dictatorship syndrome over the next seven weeks. And I will invite you to come and join in the audience in future weeks to see it's how- It's my pleasure. Yes, I, I think you'll find that this is truly one of the books for our times and it Thank will promote you. a great deal of discussion. So for that- Thank you, Ajib. Very, very indebted to you. We, we have taken a decision to keep these webinars to one hour firm so that our audience, which has been huge and very appreciative, will patient us through to the end, but I'm going to close us with one hour strictly. And so my apologies to all of you whose questions we didn't get to. I hope that you'll be with us next week and we'll get another chance to air your questions then. I do want to remind you that we will have next week a webinar at the same time where we will visit the themes of the book as they apply to the case of Iran. Aryam Alemzadeh from Princeton, and Siawush Ranjbar Daimi from St. Andrews, who will be speaking on authoritarian or revolutionary reflections on the nature of the state in the Islamic Republic of Iran. And that event will be chaired by Professor Edmund Herzig. So I really hope that you will all join us then. But I would like to close with a final word of thanks to our speaker tonight. Allah, it was wonderful. It was wonderful to have you back. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eugene. Thank you, thank you, all of the people, my friends who made it possible, who made it happen, and thank you for uh, the audience, and I hope we could uh, meet uh, after the COVID-19 problem, uh, we could meet really uh, physically, and thank you, Eugene, it, it has been very, very interesting and useful to me, I must tell you that my meeting, any meeting with, with, uh, with the readers, to me, and I think to any uh, author is very useful. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Allah. And on that note, thank you all for joining us and good night from Oxford.